Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about nitrogen economics. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team and a special guest from the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser. I am a State Nutrient Management Specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. My background is in crop nutrient guidelines. I am Fabian Fernandez, also at the University of Minnesota in uh, nutrient management research and extension work, and uh, I am located at the St. Paul campus. This is Brad Carlson. I'm an extension educator. I work out of a regional office in Mankato, uh, work a lot with nutrient management issues, water quality issues, and uh, more or less statewide. This is Jane Borboom, and I work at the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. I'm the supervisor of the Facility Management Unit, and we provide a lot of the permitting functions for pesticides and fertilizers for the bulk storage of those. Uh, And we also permit chemigation systems and work with the Waste Pesticide Collection Program as well. All right. So starting off, uh, how does the sale of nitrogen fertilizer in Minnesota break down by source and what trends have we seen in nitrogen use for crops in Minnesota? Uh, This is Dan Kaiser. And I guess uh, just to start, you know, I've been here since 2007. And one thing that we've seen pretty consistently um, since that point in time is an increased use of urea, particularly for nitrogen. And what that's meant is, um, you know, at the, the loss of anhydrous. Uh, We've seen some facilities start to um, go away from that. And it's caused some challenges when it comes to management because the two products themselves aren't the same. So that's one of the things I know Fabian has been, uh, since he's been here, been working on some projects, looking at uh, comparing some of these products just to see, particularly with some of the application timings, uh, what we're seeing currently with the weather conditions that we're having in terms of loss potential, because that's the main thing with this that I really stress to a lot of growers is that, particularly with uh, application timing, if you look at source by timing interactions, that these two things have to be taken into account for, and we just can't use the same or different sources the same way in all circumstances to get the same results. Yeah, and uh, just to add a little bit to what Dan was saying, you know, uh, before coming to Minnesota, I came in 2013. I was in Illinois, and of course, uh, over there, anhydrous ammonia was the, the primary source. So moving here to Minnesota really was uh, a change in terms of uh, the work that I was doing uh, with nitrogen, because uh, as Dan mentioned, anhydrous ammonia really has uh, become less of a... It's still a very important source, but it's definitely not the main source, and urea is definitely... A main source and one thing that i've noticed uh, coming to minnesota is that uh, many farmers uh, were used to anhydrous ammonia and now they're making a switch to urea and kind of trying to continue to use the the new source uh, as urea the same way that they did with anhydrous ammonia particularly when it comes to like fall applications and and that got me going in terms of uh, some of the research that we are doing right now to look at uh, different nitrogen sources and seeing how well they work with uh, fall versus spring versus uh, split applications, things like that. 
Yeah, I think this has been a bit of a slow train uh, building. If you go back 20 years ago, uh, when anhydrous really sort of dominated, there still was a, a general feeling in the farm community, farmers particularly, have never been real fond of anhydrous just from a safety standpoint and a comfort standpoint. Uh, a lot of cases, farmers just preferred to have that custom applied by the dealer uh, as opposed to doing it themselves. There's all kinds of horror stories about uh, hose breaks and equipment failures and, and guys getting burned uh, and so forth. And so I think there's just been this overriding feeling uh, in the farm community of, of disliking anhydrous. Uh, you know, that being said, I think we've all recognized that anhydrous is a pretty good nitrogen source as far as uh, from an economic standpoint, as well as it's got some significant environmental benefits. And so, you know, a lot of us don't really want to necessarily see anhydrous disappear uh, for that reason. Um, couple that together uh, with, with some of the uh, weather trends in the last decade, with it being wetter, it's been a, a lot more difficult to do nitrogen applications in the fall. Uh, anhydrous is uh, uh, the primary product that's fall applied uh, in Minnesota and parts of the state where we do fall application. Uh, and so the, the extent to which you haven't been able to do application at all in those places has made some kind of question it and then add also to uh, some of the again the safety concerns I think particularly on the retail level um, and you get a mixed message as far as what those actual uh, restrictions are and the the implication on the retailer but there's no doubt that there's a significant cost uh, on their end as far as uh, maintaining safety standards and so forth. And so I think all these things have also led to uh, to some of a shift too over time. Well, I'll comment on the anhydrous ammonia storage facilities um, that Brad was talking about, that there's been a change over time. And we permit those facilities, so those large white bullet tanks, if you're storing those uh, tanks in a stationary way, uh, we permit those at the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and it is to ensure that they are safely installed and maintained. And we also inspect those nurse tanks, the application equipment that's used. So for some perspective, in 1997, we did have 437 of those facilities permitted in Minnesota. And as of 2020, it went from 437 to 237. So there have been a lot of facilities that have gone out of either out of the anhydrous ammonia business or have merged uh, by other facilities and have uh, created efficiencies in those delivery and sales systems for anhydrous ammonia. And that, uh, that could also be related to um, a change in use, like you guys were saying, that urea uh, is on the uptake for those sales. Um, regarding the uh, sales information, yeah, um, since 1989, um, urea has definitely increased. T the tons of nitrogen um, for urea has changed from like 150,000 tons uh, in 1989, and now we're up to over 350,000 tons. Uh, so that is a large increase versus the decrease in anhydrous from like 350,000 tons in 1989 down to um, we're only down to 150,000 pounds or tons, excuse me, of, of anhydrous. So 
the sales data does correlate with what you are saying. I would say we have we have some other information on other types of potash sales and also phosphorus sales. We saw an uptake in those in the uh, phosphorus sales from like 89 to 2010, up about 25%, and those have now leveled off. Uh, potash has, has remained, this, remained the same uh, through time uh, for those sales as well. So, so that's sort of a snapshot of some of the sales data that we have. Great. Um, and then are farmers shifting towards more on-farm storage of nitrogen fertilizer? And what do farmers interested in storing and applying their own fertilizer need to be aware of? Yeah, we definitely have on-farm storage of fertilizer, and that includes anhydrous ammonia. Uh, we have 18 permits of those um, permits that I mentioned before are uh, farmer uh, storage uh, facilities. And we have seen uh, a change over the last probably five years of farmers uh, who want to uh, have easy access to anhydrous, so they do install their own bulk tank storage systems. Uh, I'd say that since 2010 to now, uh, we've seen a slow increase in farmers doing that. Uh, and again, that may be just that uh, the interest in using anhydrous is cycling out of these, these systems, but we do have some farmers that are interested in having their own uh, and hydrous ammonia storage. Uh, as far as um, liquid fertilizer and dry fertilizer, we definitely have seen an increase in farmers uh, wanting permits to store dry fertilizer. You need to have a permit to store dry fertilizer. Uh, and we have seen an increase. We've got about um, 140 farmers that have either liquid uh, fertilizer tanks or dry bulk storage on their on farm. So that's uh, of the 665 permits that we have, 21% of those are farm storage. And we have seen an increase in an interest in having on farm storage. For liquid bulk fertilizer, we do have an exemption for farmers. They can store 6,000 gallons or less of fertilizer on their property. That's a total of 6,000 gallons. Uh, so they can store that without a permit from the MDA, but if they exceed that amount, they do need to contact us and we do need to work with them to get them permitted. And that involves installing safeguards uh, to prevent contamination to the environment. Say if a tank would leak or something, we uh, permit and work with a farmer to get those safeguards installed. So um, we definitely have seen an increase, you know, the last, Last year was a really hard time for farmers to get uh, their nutrients on the field in the fall due to those wet conditions. Uh, we've had some interesting, um, you know, discussions with people um, on how to to have more access to, say, dry fertilizer um, in in preparation for, you know, possibly a bad year like that again. So, I think those types of weather situations. Uh, make people be creative and interested in having easier access uh, and have have on on-site storage. So we have seen more interest from farmers and, and co-ops of getting different types of storage systems ready quite quickly, so they can 
have those accessible to them. So Jane, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years uh, with, with farmers who have their own uh, semi-trucks with the concept of, uh, for instance, hauling grain uh, farther down the river and taking advantage of a better basis and then coming back with a load of fertilizer. Uh, if, if a farmer is interested in doing something like that, uh, what, what are the, first of all, what, what are the requirements as far as the facility? Uh, what does that look like? And then also uh, what steps do they go through to, uh, to get permitted? And uh, I guess, I don't know if it's inspection is required or not, but, but what do they need to do if they'd like to do that? So if a grower does go ahead and, you know, they're hauling down grain, selling the grain, and then filling up that truck with some dry fertilizer, uh, if they use it immediately and don't dump it on the ground or don't need to store it, obviously there's no permit required. But if they do want to dump it at their facility or at their uh, farm site, uh, they do need to have safeguards in place. And so what that looks like for dry fertilizer is obviously a covered system. Um, and what the first step would be for them to contact us. And we have a couple of, uh, of um, lead workers who will work with a grower to either utilize existing um, structures at a farm site or in some cases, you know, uh, install new ones. Um, but they do need to contact us. They need to pay um, a minimal fee. It's a one-time permit fee. Um, and They'll fill, fill out some paperwork, and then we'll work with them to get a system in place that will safeguard that dry fertilizer or liquid fertilizer, again, beyond 6,000 gallons. But they do need to contact us and get a storage facility in place if they're going to store dry fertilizer specifically at their farm site. And just one comment, something that I've noticed is that it doesn't happen too often, but uh, in those years where um, maybe because of uh, fall applications not being able to be done or the market uh, shifting and things like that, there have been times where there is not enough availability of fertilizers in the spring. And so that's what I've noticed people being more interested in exploring the possibility of storing their own uh, fertilizer on their farm so that they don't have the, the issue of having to wait for, uh, for you know, the fertilizer to come up the river. Um, and then another note that I have uh, a couple of times that people have asked me about storage facilities more in terms of uh, the um, the guidelines that the university provides and the main question was, you know, if I make this huge investment, are things going to change in the near future, for instance, with fall applications? Would that still be an option? And I've noticed that uh, people that are looking into uh, storing fertilizer in their, in their farms uh, are wondering about, you know, fall applications, if that will continue to be uh, an acceptable practice. And that's one of the major questions I guess I've seen really is from growers has been, um, you know, or the actually comments more than anything is, is just the ability to get the fertilizer on. And I know that's been the struggle the last few years, these wetter years in having the ability for these co-ops to get in and uh, apply all the fertilizers for these growers in a timely fashion where they're not waiting. So I, I guess it's, it's interesting to see some of these trends, it, particularly what I, I find interesting is the growers that are looking at on-farm storage of anhydrous, 
because that's uh, one of the things I guess I never really expected that um, it's a lot easier to handle urea that they'd look at um, stirring anhydrous. But we see, especially some of these shifts in these co-ops, um, the area is shrinking, um, particularly in taking in some areas uh, a lot larger or takes it longer to get anhydrous out to the farm where you're going that it doesn't I guess surprise me to see this occurring so it'll just be interesting to see kind of how this goes um you know we look at the last I say two three years being having some really tough uh, short springs this year we'll see what happens because you know we've had a, a relatively decent spring at this point in time to see how things differ but uh I know just um, hearing comments from growers particularly on um, applications with airplane that doesn't seem to be a very good option so we need to really, I think, start thinking about this to maybe have some backup plans in place for applications to allow us to get into the field, get all the nitrogen applied, particularly in these these springs like um, we saw in 2018 and 2019, where it was really struggle to get things in the field. Yeah, the past few years have been challenging with respect to nitrogen management due to the weather. Uh, how might this have affected the nitrogen sales figures with respect to source? And do any of you anticipate a correction with a better spring this year? Well, I think there's been no no doubt that the last few years have been wet enough that it's caused some significant challenges with application of anhydrous ammonia. Uh, you know, one is the uh, how wet it's been in the fall as far as delaying a harvest and tillage and other activities, and that just simply squeezes the window for doing an application. Of course, the other part of this is is that anhydrous is performed with uh, uh, not aggressive, but at least some minimal type of tillage. And anhydrous knife is at least something. And when it's wet, uh, you know, no one wants to be out, A, uh, potentially rutting up the field and getting a tractor stuck, but B, dragging a knife through the ground. Uh, and then in addition to that, there's always the uh, the uh, specter of losing a lot of that nitrogen if, it, if you uh, have high clay content soils and you slice a trench through and it's really wet, it may not seal behind the knife. Uh, some of that can be corrected if you're applying deeper, but still uh, not an ideal situation. And and so we've had a lot of that the last few years, and it's really kind of put the bite on uh, farmers wanting to do anhydrous applications. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the extent to which a lot of farmers who do their own application are were never probably greatly comfortable with the product anyway. Uh, from a safety standpoint. Uh, and then beyond that, the fact that it's really the only product we uh, widespread endorse for fall application uh, under most circumstances, at least in, in major parts of the state. Uh, if you're not going to do a fall application, it sort of begs the question then is, are you still stuck with anhydrous? And so uh, the uh, obviously there's a higher cost associated uh, with with uh, other fertilizer types, urea, uh, and so forth, if for no other reason, just simply because the um, the nutrient is a lot more dilute and you're dealing with more pounds of product. But uh, uh, because, for instance, urea can be spread over the surface uh, so quickly uh, and with, with uh, out invasiveness to the soils, it's actually more amenable to uh, a wider range of conditions. And I guess uh, ultimately, um, it's going to be difficult to predict whether uh, what has happened or transpired over the last few years has simply been an adjustment to the weather or whether farmers themselves are thinking on account of the change in the weather conditions, uh, this may be a permanent feature and I'm going to kind of adapt uh, what I consider to be ideal management in the long term. 
And I guess, as I said before, I'm, I'm really curious to see some of the results from the trials this year. I know, Fabian, we you did end up getting some of these um, fall spring urea comparisons in, in place this spring, just to see what the numbers look like, because I think this will be telling to us, at least with the timing aspect, particularly with fall urea, if we have a drier spring, um, the winter, I don't know, I mean, I guess we were a little bit warmer than normal, so that may hasten some of the changeover, but without some of these spring rains like we've normally gotten, just, just where things are going to be at this year. And that's one of the things I think we've been discussing, uh, kind of kicking around, you know, what to do with our fall urea BMPs, because the, the data really hasn't looked good up to this point. So that's, I guess, the big thing. It'll be just seeing this year, and, you know, if things aren't stacking up, I think it'll be, um, you know, probably further evidence that we need to maybe make some change and um, some things that growers really need to be thinking about, because as some of these co-ops shift towards different sources, particularly being more reliant on a urea-based end application system, we really just need to be sure that um, that that isn't the best option for fall, and it just really hasn't looked that great, just based on some of the data. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. The um, when we look at urea fall apply, it has just not been uh, a practice that I would uh, recommend at all because the potential for loss is just too great. Uh, again, just like you, I'm thinking. Well, this is out of all the years where we have done the studies. This is I think the first spring where it's been uh, drier and and the loss really happens in the spring. I mean, sometimes if it's warmer during the winter, we may start getting a little bit of a mineralization and then nit uh, of the soil organic matter and then uh, nitrification of, of uh, the nitrogen that we apply in the form of urea a little bit earlier. But then again, in, if the spring is dry and there is no much uh, drainage happening, then the nitrate just sits there and it's not really lost. Uh, um, and so it's available to the crop. So it will be interesting to see how those results look like this year. Um, the other thing that is very interesting and some of the stuff that I have been doing quite extensively since I came here is um, looking at the split application. So applying a little bit of nitrogen pre-plant and then really applying the bulk of the application later in the season. And uh, we have uh, been doing this mostly in really wet springs because as has been the, the case since uh, since I've been here since 2013, I think most springs have been uh, fairly wet except for, I guess, this one. And uh, so far what we've seen with, with this plate application, well, uh, logistically kind of makes sense saying or, you know, um, applying a little bit of nitrogen early in the spring where you have higher potential for loss and then applying the bulk later when there is less potential. It kind of makes sense. Um, in reality, when we look at the numbers, we find that except for um, very sandy soils, the, uh, the split application doesn't always make much of a difference compared to a spring pre-plant application when it's done close to planting time. Um, we had a, a study um, that uh, we had actually in Minnesota and across the Midwest, and basically 65 to 88% of the, the sites uh, where we did this comparison with only applying all nitrogen pre-plant or doing a split application where we saw there was no difference between uh, either one of those systems. So uh, again, the only time where we really saw a benefit was mostly in, in sandy soils where the split application may, 
made great sense because of the potential for nitrogen loss early in the spring. So again, it will be, I think, important to continue to look at these questions and especially years like this year where it's been uh, uh, drier than, than typical for, for the spring and see how, how things work out this year. Yeah, I'll just take uh, what Fabian just said, just a, a tiny little step farther, and that just uh, has to do with the um, the trend towards doing split applications, particularly as it pertains to nitrogen advisory tools and variable rate applications. And obviously, we don't do very much uh, side dress anhydrous ammonia. There's uh, some spots of the state where there's sandier soils where they do a little bit of that. But uh, the extent to which we keep going in that trend, and, and uh, yes, our research has been uh, um, shown that there isn't really a consistent return on investment to that. Um, but uh, if the trend continues, that probably will continue to also push the uh, source uh, as far as uh, the type of fertilizer used. Because, again, uh, anhydrous just isn't used uh, very much when it comes to uh, a, a side dress in-season application. Yeah, and one one more thing that I was going to mention in terms of uh, these split applications that often is actually not mentioned much is the the fact that you do have uh, an additional uh, trip through the field, so that adds some of the cost. And typically, we talk about these things and uh, in terms of the agronomics, in terms of you know how much yield we get and things like that. But we uh, hardly ever talk about the fact that there is an additional cost. And so when you put that uh, additional cost to, to the application and some of the logistics associated with, with the application in season, then it may even look uh, a little bit less favorable even. Um, and one more thing that I was going to mention that um, the question always comes up with these split applications about, um, well, how much nitrogen do I need to apply pre-plant in order to, to wait until I do my side dress application? And we, we had a study looking at basically 45 uh, or 40 to 80 pounds of uh, nitrogen applied pre-plant and then doing the side dress application, the rest at, uh, at around V8, V9. And we found that for the most part, uh, over 90% of the time, uh, 45 kilo or 40 pounds of nitrogen were sufficient to you know, hold the crop until the side dress time. Uh, these, of course, were uh, uh, corn after soybean in most cases if you're in a continuous corn then maybe uh, upping the application a little bit uh, would be uh, good but uh, again you don't need a huge amount of nitrogen uh, applied pre-plant if you're going to do a side dress application. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening.